Welcome to Unpacking Impact, a podcast that explores how rapid digital transformation shapes economics, culture, jobs, policy, and of course, you. Each episode, we speak with thought leaders that are playing and changing the game at the highest levels. In today's episode, we are joined by Chris Young, Microsoft's Executive Vice President for Business Development and the former CEO of McAfee. Chris serves on the board of directors of American Express, the president's National Security Telecommunications Advisory Committee, and was previously on the board of SNAP. We discussed the SolarWinds attack, U.S. vulnerability to cyber attacks, the role of corporate leadership in cybersecurity, and more. I'm Naveen Takaram. I'm Andrew Schwartz. Let's begin. Well, Chris, let's jump right in with something you've said in the past, which is everyone is a target for a cyber attack. The theme there for me is that cybersecurity is such a broad topic affecting government, the private sector, individuals, the military, pretty much all parts of our society. So before we dive in too deep, can you break it down for me? What frameworks can we use to break down cybersecurity into more bite-sized pieces for the audience? Yeah, well, I will tell you this. In cyber, there is no shortage of frameworks and approaches to how to think about the various elements of the problem. But maybe at the highest level to set the stage, here's how to think about cybersecurity. There are people who attack. And in that category, you'll have criminals, just like you would have in a physical sense. You have countries and nations there underneath that you might have spies and then you have a mixture of call it private and, and public sector players that might be doing a little bit of both you know in a traditional context you might call those mercenaries people who are hired by a nation state to do something you know execute something on the nation state's behalf then on the other side you have targets that could be a company, a governmental entity. It could be an individual. It could be any of the, it could be a nonprofit organization. As I've said in the past, there's no, there's no person, institution, business with that is not susceptible potentially to a cyber attack, just given the pervasive nature of connectivity and, and technology in our lives today. And then in the middle are the, the methods. It's how these attackers you know, go after and apply their trade craft. And then really influencing the whole thing is the the motivation. And, you know, you can kind of look at the adversary and say, or the attacker and say, who are they? And how does that define the motivation of, of what they're trying to do? And then methods will be varied, be widely varied. And, you know, obviously, you know, every few years now, we have a, a major event that happens, which tends to kind of redefine the way we think about methods and procedures that that these attackers are using. And in some ways, you know, almost the best way to think about cyber, if you're a non-technical person, is that most of what happens in cyberspace also happens in the physical world, or there's a there's an equivalent, an analog in the in the physical world, whether it's you know, person-to-person crime, nation state to nation state espionage, organization to organization. You know, the, this many of the different methods that happen, you know, holding something for ransom. You hear a lot about ransomware these days. Many of these methodologies are, are mirror images of, of crime or attack types that we could find in the physical world. 
Recently, we've all been talking about solar winds. And, you know, one of the things that remains shocking to me to this day is that we might not have known about solar winds had not my friend Kevin Mandia's company seen it and figured it out. What's your take on solar winds and what do we need to do to, you know, figure it out? Have we figured it out yet fully? And what do we need to do to prepare for future attacks like this? Three things there, Andrew. One, FireEye was the first to find it and surface it to the world. And, you know, we all are very much grateful to FireEye for finding it, surfacing it so that we can we can all get after understanding and, and dealing with the really the aftermath of the, the path of the attack that's that's been happening. Secondly, it's really bigger. You know, unfortunately, solar winds has become synonymous with the attack, but it's bigger than solar winds. What I try to get people focused on is attacks happen to different organizations at different times, leveraging different methods. This is one where I think we need to orient ourselves around the nature of what happened, which is that organizations use a series of, of suppliers, vendors, partners. And in this case, an attack was actually levied through a technical partner that thousands of companies and, and governmental agencies use. And the software update mechanism was the vector through which the initial set of intrusions ultimately happened in this particular attack. And then the last one I'll, I'll say is we're not, I, I wouldn't say we, we know everything today. I do think there, there has been a tremendous amount of information that ourselves and many other cybersecurity players and others have put out there in the public domain that are useful to help organizations, you know, immediately triage their situation, understand where they may have had an issue. But I think we're still trying to learn, you know, if I go back to what, you know, my, my response to Naveen's opening question, I think we still have yet to learn, you know, what were the motivations? What were the ultimate ends of the attackers in this case? You know, I, I know there's been speculation about the attacker. I don't know that we have full attribution. That's a difficult thing to do in, in cyber attacks, period which is why I've always said I leave that to the government to do attribution. You know, our, in cybersecurity and private sector, our work is to protect and, and, and to prevent and to remediate and respond when, when we're faced with something like this. Uh, and I think so. I think the motivations and the ultimate goals of the attackers themselves are still fully yet to be determined. Let me ask you this, though. President Biden has shown that he's willing to go after Russia with sanctions in response to solar winds. Is that enough? I think it's a start. I think that, you know, and this is something that Brad, we've talked about at Microsoft is at a macro level, there's a lot of, there's a lot more that needs to happen. We think there's a number of governments that need to come together at an international level to set better sort of rules, like, like almost like an international Geneva convention around cyber as a starting point, because in some ways the rules of engagement here are completely undefined, unlike in a physical context, you know, how many countries have come together and tried to define what rules of engagement look like. Now, I don't I don't know that we'll be able to bring all the right parties to the table to agree to that, because anyone, you know, cyber is the ultimate asymmetric, you know, sort of problem where any small group or individual could actually have a much more outsized impact on society or a government or a business. But we need to get started. You know, so we need better international standards, as we've we've been talking about in the industry for a long time. And I think it's been I know it's been re-raised through this, how we do threat intelligence sharing between and among 
private sector organizations, public sector organizations is critical to get out in front and really be faster at responding to these kinds of attacks. That's another approach that we need to take. And I think that the federal government, the U.S. federal government can have a much bigger impact by facilitating some of this, whether it's country to country agreements or public sector, private sector agreements and norms around how we share threat intelligence and information so that we can all be better and faster at responding to these attacks. Those are just two things. There's a lot more that can be done. Yeah, but those are great points. Thank you for that. Chris, I love how you broke down the different ways to think about cyber in terms of the criminal element, the targets, and the methods. And it seemed like one of the things people are talking about with the SolarWinds attack was the method of it, you know, through a vendor. It was an indirect to an indirect, and finally, I don't know, maybe multiple indirects, and then finally the target, whether it be governments or, or companies, were were damaged by it. Was that why people are so fascinated with this particular attack, besides the scope of it? The method was unique. And then I guess the piggyback question is, you know, where is the U.S. government and maybe the U.S. military the most susceptible to a cyber attack? Is it going to be direct attacks on their infrastructure or will it be in the future things like this where it's a, an update to a software through a vendor, through another organization that comes and ultimately delivers the attack? You know, I'd say for the last several years, Naveen, the, this notion of supply chain attack is has become something that a lot of governments, private sector organizations are focused on, boards you know, are looking at this as a major risk factor for a lot of companies. But yes, I think in, to your question, initially, one of the sort of unique elements of this attack was that one of the attack components was actually inserted into the build process of an update for the, the SolarWinds software. And that that was a unique method that the attackers used to infiltrate a number of organizations then downstream. And, and that, I think, is one of the reasons why this became a very unique focus for the industry, because, you know, that insertion into the build process is, you know, it wasn't like it was, it was just a it, that they even got into source code. It was the build process. So it all happened kind of in real time. And it gave the attackers a reasonably stealthy way to get into the initial foothold in the organization. And then, you know, once they get credentials, they can actually operate and credentials could be usernames, passwords, et, et cetera. They can now then operate as if they're part of an organization and become very hard to detect at that point. So this, the notion about getting in, it's similar like if somebody was to break into a home or a building and get the, the code to your alarm system then they can they can operate as if they're there, right? And, and that's the challenge in this case, where you know once they got in, they were able to get further codes, if you will, and then use that as a way to move inside an organization and avoid detection. Then you know through normal mechanisms, they even in this case disabled a lot of the you know the traditional kind of anti malware software that that runs on most of these endpoint devices. And I think some of the technical methodologies, what we call TTPs in the trade, tools, techniques, and processes is what that stands for. That was an initial focus for a lot of people in cyber because it wasn't an, an approach we had seen in the past. There was also a lot, and this is this is well documented on a number of, you know, particularly in FireEyes, ours, and a number of other players' sites. You know, the way they, they use basically clean and unique IP addresses a lot of times in cyber attacks. 
you know, you have these I, you know IP addresses that have been used prior. So you know, we we you, you look for malicious IPs. In this case, they went out and bought you know brand new IPs. They took a long time to execute these attacks. They were quiet, if you will, once they got in. So they didn't leave behind very much for the forensics experts to go and and trace in terms of their methods. So they were good at erasing their tracks as well. And so the approach, the technical methodologies that they used were part of the reason why I think this became something that was really uh, highlighted in the industry because it was unique in that respect. And it's an example of a supply chain attack at a macro level. And that's something we've been thinking about and talking about. But I think really the first time we've seen it at this scale in the industry. You know, I'm an investor in a lot of companies. And even though we have best-in-class security, one in particular runs on the Microsoft Cloud, the level of sophistication you're describing makes any business person extremely nervous. And we have a lot of CEOs and business leaders you know, listening to this podcast right now. If you're a CEO of a company, which obviously you have been in the past, what do you do in light of these revelations? What can you do to protect your company and your customers from the next generation cyber attack? You have to do a few things. You know, one, this attack doesn't obviate the need for basic cybersecurity hygiene, basic good IT hygiene. And, you know, I, I would tell you in this case, you know, just like I would have told you two years ago, good cybersecurity methods, policies, practices, hygiene make a, would make a big difference in terms of your organization's level of susceptibility to this kind of attack. You know, you're more likely to find it. You're more likely to stop it. You know, FireEye is a good example of that, right? They have good hygiene. They ultimately were able to quickly kind of get to an answer and find this thing and be able to do something about it. You know, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. And so, you know, it comes down to things like how do you manage credentials, your usernames and passwords, as an example, modern IT infrastructure. You know, for example, we were able to see in our in our cloud accounts, you know, sort of abnormal behavior, if you will, if someone was using Office 365 in the cloud, but if they're on-prem, we don't see it, right? Because, you know, the companies run that infrastructure on, the, on their own. And we were able to notify a number of organizations based on behavioral patterns that were outside of the norm. And, and you know, so those companies and those organizations could get after the problem more quickly. So it's a good example of where cloud infrastructure in this case would help make you better able to respond to this kind of attack. Chris, that makes a lot of sense. I think one thing that's been on the top of mind for a lot of people in the cybersecurity space right now is watching what's happened in Texas and what's still going on with the power grid and thinking, well, this is something that we all have known about for a while and know that is a is a target, is a national security threat. Does the Texas disaster heighten the awareness of this? Does it make companies and power companies in particular think about cybersecurity differently? You know, Ted Koppel wrote a book, Lights Out, about this, you know, this potential threat years ago. In fact, I had him as a guest at one of my conferences when I was at McAfee as a keynote speaker. And he was he was great, by the way. But he's I mean, he's obviously called this out. Uh, he's not the only one, but it, he's like I said, he's written a book. It's it's actually worth reading. I think obviously the issues in Texas weren't a cyber attack. They were caused by Mother Nature. But it does highlight the importance or the fragility, if you will, of our power systems. And obviously, they're all different state by state, locale by locale. 
And it does remind us that resilience in this case, and it's a little bit back to Naveen, your question a moment ago, which is if you're a CEO of a power company or what should you be caring about? Well, you should care about resilience, business continuity. Do you have good hygiene? You know, the, the, the difficult thing for a lot of organizations, whether you're a leader of a, of a public sector organization or a private sector, is it's difficult to invest in, in things that are, you know, sort of high impact, low probability events. In fact, I think, I think in the U.S. in particular, culturally, we hate that. Like we, we don't want to invest, like we don't want to make long term investments to obviate the sort of low probability, high impact attacks. So, in some ways, if you think about it, you know, even in the late 2020, COVID is a high impact but low probability event, and we were unprepared to deal with it as a country. And this is another example. Why? Because we have to make long-term investments. They're expensive. They cost money. They require patience. And, you know, it's hard to invest in some of those things when you need to invest for the now. And some of these investments could be sizable, right? Because you're, you know, our power infrastructure has been around for a long time, very old systems, tools, techniques. And so it's going to require major infrastructure upgrades to get to more modern technologies, which will allow for better monitoring, better visibility, better resilience against things like a weather event or in the potential case, Andrew, the cyber attack, you know, that Koppel writes about in the book Lights Out. Well, what do you think is keeping our enemies from attacking our power grids right now? Because, you know, it's not that hard for them to do it. And as you said, you know, for our power companies and other critical infrastructure to, you know, really protect themselves and to think long term, it requires all of you just said, plus constant upkeep, lots of money, lots of thought, lots of, you know. So what what is it that you think? I mean, is it being an act of war enough of a deterrent? I mean, a lot of these people have plausible deniability. I think there's a few factors. I think one is it's actually harder than it, than it looks because, the, as I mentioned, like every, you know, power systems are not ubiquitous. There are different systems in different states and different locales. So it's not easy to just wipe out the whole thing in, in one go. It is not as easy as it sounds. You know, we have a term for this in the cyberspace. It's called security through obscurity, right? I am not a believer in that, right? I'm not a believer in, you know, like obscurity doesn't mean good security. It just means it's harder to do and potentially you're pushing off the inevitable. So I think we do have some security through obscurity in the in the power grid and power systems case, but that doesn't last forever. And I do think we're going to need to make investments. And, and the good news is, I, I think investments are starting to be made, but it's going to be a long journey. It's going to be a long journey. The other thing is, look, the energy industry has invested in cyber. They do spend money on this. So I wouldn't say they're completely wide open without the ability to detect and respond to attacks. Obviously, our government is paying attention to this as well. I think it's a safe bet that they've come in and deterred attacks as well. I mean, you never hear about the the attacks that do get deterred or mitigated either by private sector organizations or by our government. So again, it's not that we're like, I, I think it's important to realize like we're not asleep at the wheel completely. You know, we do have vulnerabilities in a lot of different parts of our infrastructure, but there's investments being made. There's smart, very talented people who are working hard on these problems. And that makes me optimistic that we can get over, you know, we can get to the other side and, and, and create more resilient systems. 
but it's just a constant, you know, process that we have to work through. In fact, probably one of the best ways it was said to me was actually, I kind of was talking to Condoleezza Rice about this at a, at an event. And she said, some things in, in life, you just got to keep working at it and just working at it and working at it. And the cybersecurity resiliency is one of those things. You just got to keep working at it. And, you know, if you think about it this way, the, the things we can do today with technology, even in the last year, are credit to, you know, some of the, the men and women in cyber, you know, again, public sector and private that have made our systems more resilient. I mean, we were able to basically go nearly all virtual in March of last year. And without good cyber infrastructure to support all of the IT infrastructure that was in place, I don't think we would have been able to do that effectively. So, you know, while I'm a realist about where we are with cyber, I'm also an optimist about where we're going. Well, that that is true. And we almost take, you know, the tools that, you know, your company and others have put out, you know, Teams and Zoom and things like that. We almost take it for granted now. But, you know, a year ago, we hardly, you know, use these except for internal things. And now they're really a way of life. So it just goes to show you that the kind of technology that Microsoft and others have developed really is revolutionary and does enable us to move the ball forward in, in just about everything we do. And there's a tremendous amount of security infrastructure that goes along to support all of that technology that we use to run our organizations. And you know, I do think that in our government, we do have a lot of talented men and women who are paying attention, they're monitoring. You know, I've, I've been in a lot of situations where the FBI will call and say, hey, this is going on in your organization. You need to do, you know, take a look. Again, we have a lot of people who are watching, paying attention, working hard on this problem. We're not asleep at the wheel here. Things happen. This is a complicated problem. It's a global problem. It's a massively asymmetric problem, like I talked about, but it's not an unsolvable problem over the long run. Chris, where should we be focused on in terms of expecting cyber attacks, whether you're an individual or whether you're a CEO like we were talking about? Is it certain countries? Is it certain groups? Is it going to be rogue actors? I think you have to focus more on the target than on the origination points, because I think the origination points are too hard to... They're too hard to know because it could come from anywhere. That's the problem with asymmetry, right? You just, it's virtually impossible to predict exactly where an attack will come from. And even if you, even if you said, hey, we're going to focus on a certain group of nation states or criminal actor groups, you know, they can mask their efforts. They can start attacks from different parts of the world. And this is one of those problems where it's like, you know, somebody can be levying an attack from very close to their target by using a series of servers through which they, you know, they're actually communicating. And so it's not, it's not as straightforward as to say, Hey, look, we're just going to watch this one group. Or like, if you were to use an analogy, right, we're not going to, we can't just kind of follow a crime syndicate in a city and say, okay, we're just going to watch those folks and see what they do. And that's the way we can kind of contain their efforts. This is far more complicated than, than something like that. So what do we do? I mean, we, we focus on, hygiene, resilience, the right people, processes, and technology for cyber. I do think the government has a broader role to play in some of the areas that we talked about earlier around information sharing. We also believe the government should encourage organizations to disclose when they've been penetrated or attacked, not just when there's a data breach. Like you think about it this way, right now our laws say if data has been breached, you have to notify and you have to disclose. 
But a lot of organizations get penetrated on a much more regular basis and they don't have to disclose anything. So they don't. But by not disclosing, the rest of us don't get smarter. It's kind of like a bunch of people getting COVID and no one's saying anything. You don't know how to track it, right? You can't contact trace and you don't learn from it and get better. Cyber is very similar. You got to be able to learn and get better. And so more encouragement, you know, again, at the government level, you know, kind of pushing organizations to disclose and share information, share what they've learned can prevent downstream impacts of these attacks. And I think that's important. And so there's, there's work that organizations can do and individuals can do to protect themselves. I think there's work the government needs to do to set the right standards, foundations, frameworks, encouragement. I think we have to invest more in infrastructure and modernizing, you know, the IT that we use in a lot of different sectors. Energy would be one, Andrew, to your point earlier. But it's going to take a, a very cohesive set of approaches for us to really continue to raise the waterline or to raise it fast enough so that we can obviate these attacks. Now, Chris, here's a question that our listeners are really going to want to hear what you have to say on. Based on your experiences on the board for SNAP, your current position on the Amex board, how should boards be thinking about cybersecurity and, and what's their role? Well, number one, you've got to look at it as one of your key risk factors as an organization. And you've got to constantly focus on that. And I can say, you know, I can say proudly that the boards I'm a part of or been a part of have always had, you know, sort of cyber as a key risk area. And we we regularly talked with the teams that were that own cyber as a board. We had visibility into the programs, the techniques that we use to protect the organization the policies that we had as an organization. I think that's important for boards to be able to do. Like number one is visibility. If you think about it, you go back 10 years ago, I don't think boards could spell cybersecurity in most cases, maybe in some, you know, financial services was ahead of the curve, I think, because they banks were getting attacked, you know, long before other parts of the economy. But, you know, this has become, you know, I like to say that cyber has gone from the back room to the boardroom in many organizations. And most important thing in boards is, you know, they're here for governance and guidance. And so visibility at the board level, asking the hard questions, asking the what if questions like you guys are doing with me here. It's like, you know, what could happen? How could it happen? If it were to happen, what would we do about it? Boards are uniquely suited as well to ask a question related to the phenomenon I talked about earlier, which is how do we deal with the low probability, high impact scenarios in our organization? Like those are the kinds of questions that boards should be asking to make sure that, that bases are getting covered. And then what do we do if we are attacked? And how do we recover? How do we respond? How do we know we're going to be quick to see it and, de- and be able to deal with it? I think those are all very important topic areas for boards to keep front and center. Chris, there's another question that boards are wrestling with right now, an area that I know you're very passionate about, which is this question of racial equality and racial equity. And in addition to holding companies accountable, yeah, how do you see this as a business imperative? Is this something that boards and CEOs and leaders should be wrestling with? Is it part of their purview? I think absolutely it's an important part of the purview of, of boards and leaders you know, in the private sector. And, and, and here's why. I think, one, anything that is impacting you know, large sections of our society is, is an important issue for the companies that are part of the society. We're all, we're all a fabric, right? And if 2020 taught us anything is we're all uniquely linked with one another and we, we sort of thrive or, you know, sort of have issues together. And 
I think it's important that companies take seriously racial equity, gender equity. It's an important topic area because, you know, our companies are, are part of the fabric of our society. Broadly speaking, however, you know, the, the data show diversity and inclusion, you know, diverse organizations, they make better decisions. They're able to think differently and more broadly about trends. And so there's a business element there, you know, beyond sort of the participation of companies in society that I think makes diversity and inclusion and makes companies role in the racial justice imperative very important. And so it's something that should be front and center for every organization. Yeah, we've talked a lot about the responsibilities with regards to large companies, institutions, public sector organizations. But what can small businesses do and what can individuals do that obviously don't have a fraction of the resources that a big company might to protect themselves from a cyber attack? You know, so cyber attacks are, I mean, I think, I think individuals, there's, look, there's a lot of tools that are out there. There's a lot that you can do as an individual. You know, the first thing you can do is just get educated. What I always tell people is do the basics. And the basics would be something like don't use the same password on every account that you have. Use a password manager. Use the unique generation tools in the, in the password manager to generate your passwords. So that's a really easy thing a lot of, a lot of people, individuals can do. Then you can go download you know, anti-malware software to run on your machine. You know, Microsoft builds it into Windows, but you have tons of other options if you want to do something differently. And you know, there's a lot of resources out there to get yourself educated. You know, we do it at Microsoft. Other companies provide educational information to help you keep yourself safe. And then the other thing is just pay attention. Like pay attention to your accounts, pay attention to your email, don't hand out your passwords to people. Make sure you update your your software on your machines, your operating systems. You know, those are all basic things that as we make technology more pervasive in our lives that we've just got to we got to own. Same thing in, like from a physical sense, like you know, if you're going to have a home and you live in an area with crime, you probably want to have an alarm. You probably want to keep your doors locked at night. Those are, you know, some basic things that you can do to protect yourself. And then you know, that, that, that same sentiment sort of exists as you move up and say, okay, small business, what does a small business do? Well, yes, they can't spend as much money as a large organization, but they also have less to protect. You know, a small business can adopt some of the basic security tools, visibility capabilities. They are going to have as a cost of doing business, have to think about how do I think about security? How do I make sure I have some of the basics in place? I would say in this case that cloud technologies will make it easier for smaller business so that if at least if their their technical infrastructure runs in the cloud, they can rely on some of the bigger players to be part of their security team, if you will. If they're running everything themselves, it's a little bit more difficult. Then they've got to go hire security people to operate their infrastructure and make sure that they've, you know, they've got all their bases covered. Yeah, I mean, the last thing small businesses need right now is a cyber attack because with the impact of COVID-19, small businesses and entrepreneurs around the country have been economically suffering. What do you think the long-term impact on small businesses of what's happened in the last year, not just COVID, but that's created a whole waterfall of effects in how we work, how we live, how we communicate? And if you're a small business owner or if you're just a mid-career professional, how would you prepare yourself for some of these trends that are affecting each and every American every day? Well, clearly 2020 
created a situation that's really been difficult for a lot of Americans and people around the world, financially, health-wise. And that's also been true for a number of small businesses as well. On the positive side, however, not all small businesses are created equal. Some small businesses have really thrived through COVID, just like a number of large organizations as well. You know, technology companies as a sector, small, medium and large, have done on mass very well because we're shifting a lot more of our customer engagement, our employee interactions, you know, to technology, because that's been the way we've been able to continue to operate in many respects, you know, through 2020. So I think that the answer to your question really depends, you know, what is your business? What are you and what are you doing? And I would say that that if you're I do think that that 2020 tells us technology and, and the adoption and usage of technology is going to be critical to any business, like whether you're in a restaurant business or a manufacturing business, or you actually are in, you know, a technology provider, you know, becoming more tech technology enabled is going to be critical in order for you to be able to pivot. Like, you know, for example, restaurants were one of the sectors that got hit the hardest in 2020, but you know, the ones that are, that will do the best are the ones who were able to pivot and go to online ordering, curbside pickup, delivery, do that quickly, effectively, and come up with the processes as well as the tools to be able to effectively do that. And I think that that's a good example of, you know, sort of where the world is headed. You know, I think that when my kids are older, I was telling this, saying this to someone the other day, when my kids are older, everything they do will be touched by technology. They probably won't even drive their own cars. I mean, it'll probably be driven for them by the car itself, uh, as an example. And, you know, that's just one of many things. You know, we won't we won't type as much into our computers. We'll just speak in order to, to compete, as an example. We'll talk to our homes, you know, raise the temperature, lower the temperature, lights on, lights off. I mean, those are the things that'll be happening in not just 20 years, but five years, 10 years, you know, anything that's touchless, payments. You know, there are some positives coming out of 2020 and the acceleration of the adoption of technology and its ability to enhance our lives is is absolutely happening at a faster rate than it was going into 2020. And I, I think that's going to that's going to open up opportunities for people from a skilling perspective. Naveen, it does mean that people need to be, you know, need to be more oriented around technology in terms of their skill set. I just do think that that's important. Like my advice to anyone now. If you're thinking about what do I need to focus on in, in high school or college, like I would be trying to learn math, computer science, and at least become proficient in technology because that's where the opportunities are going to be. You know, whether you're in a technology company or whether you're, you know, technology, using technology to enable energy, healthcare, logistics, retail financial services, all of the industries, almost every industry will be you know, underpinned by, by technology and made better, smarter, faster, more interesting, you know, through some of the advancements that we're seeing, you know, the early germs of today. What do you think the biggest impact of COVID has been on the tech industry? Innovation and acceleration, like it has really just supercharged a lot of the work that's going on. I think you think you've seen, you're seeing it, right? You're seeing tech companies invest more. You're seeing more small companies. You're, just, you're seeing just the, the activity in the technology space 
it, it's just growing exponentially right now. And COVID has been a one of the one of the stimulants there, you know, big, a big stimulant to 2020 for sure. How should companies and consumers think about data protection? Should governments be thinking about changing the standards or is it going to be on the responsibility of the user to protect their own data? I think data protection starts with visibility. I think it, I think individuals need to need to understand what they're doing with their data, where their data resides, and you're seeing a number of standards, obviously GDPR in Europe, you know, California's privacy standards are are really you know, that's the first step is like to provide, to create visibility for, for individuals. I think internally companies and organizations are being pushed, you know, certainly in financial services, regulators are pushing financial services companies to make sure they understand what data they have, where is it, how's it being used. And I just think increasingly the, the first step is visibility. The next step then is figuring out how do we put the right controls on it so that we can, we can only surface the data that's required at the times that it's required. And we have the ability, ability to revoke information, to cleanse information so that we don't just kind of create information that stays out in the world forever, but we do give the, the user some ability to control it. We put some of the onus on organizations that are stewards, I'll say, of information to treat it with care and to have the ability to understand where it is, what's being done with it, and to only use what's necessary and get rid of it when they don't need it. And there is a long way to go. This is going to be a journey. There's not a, you know, there's not just a couple of laws that can get passed and change this. There's not a few technical changes. This is going to be a, an evolutionary process that we'll have to go through. Again, public sector, private sector, you know, look, even Governments are setting the standards, but they themselves have a lot of work to do to, to better protect the information they have about citizens as well. And, you know, that it's true for companies, it's true for governments, but it starts with visibility and then it's going to be about controls and, and how we treat that information. Chris, I want to close with one question. What gives you the most hope for the future? I'm an optimist. I, I love, you know, I, I think that the innovation we're driving as a society is just incredible. I mean, I just even think about, I was talking about this with someone the other day. If I just think about what's happened in my own life, you know, my first job, I didn't even have email. Had it in college <laughs> and in my first job, I didn't have email. And now what we can do with communications is just absolutely incredible. You know, I used to have, I remember like as a kid, like when I had my first savings account, I had like had a pass book and you go into the bank with, you know, $10 you got for allowance and they, you know, give it to the bank and they, they deposit it. And then like literally they stick it in a typewriter and type in the deposit and the, and the, like, think about how far we've come from that. Now you just pop open your phone and, you know, you're, you're doing everything through an app. I mean, those are like those kinds of innovations and the evolution of what we can do today makes me optimistic. And then whenever I look into the eyes of my kids, I um, can't help but be excited about the future for them. Sometimes a bit worried, but also excited about the future. You know, I I just, I fundamentally believe that, you know, our youth are, are so critical to invest in. And even if you just look at the younger generations and what they did this summer around racial injustice and coming out and and supporting people and really pushing for change, you know, people of all races, colors, creeds. It was really, you know, gave me a lot of hope that the future of our world is a better one than the past. And that's how I get up every morning and feel good about what I do and about where we're headed. Words to live by. 
Chris, thank you so much for your time today and helping us unpack the impact of what's going on out there. This is really, this is a good one. We appreciate it. Hey, I, I appreciate the opportunity and a pleasure to meet you, Andrew and Naveen. Great to see you. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you, Chris. If you enjoy this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog. Music.